Thanks, John. If you've got a Bible there, it's worth uh, keeping that open so that you can make sure that what I'm saying is actually coming from God's Word. Um, I reckon it's worth saying, as a church, uh, we do this thing, they call it expository preaching, uh, as in we take part of the Bible and we work our way through it. Uh, And the thinking behind that is we want uh, God to set the agenda for us as a church and not the other way around. Um, Otherwise, I could just choose bits of the Bible that I like to preach on. Uh, This is probably one that I'd avoid, Um, but here we are, hey? Uh, So uh, why don't we pray and ask God for help? Uh, Lord, we we thank you uh, that we can gather together like this. um, And uh, as you speak to us through your word, uh, we pray uh, that you would be here with us. Um, Help us to listen carefully. um, And we pray uh, that we would leave here uh, looking to Jesus. Uh, And we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, back in uh, 2004, the, the University of New South Wales, they, they did a, a study uh, on what Australians consider to be socially unacceptable. Uh, and at the time, coming in at number five uh, was smoking marijuana occasionally. Socially unacceptable. Uh, number four, dobbing someone into the police. Uh, third was the, the promiscuous single woman Second, the drunken office flirt. But what was considered to be the the worst social behaviour by a long shot? Adultery, to to cheat on your your husband or your wife. Uh, On this journalist, Adele Horange, she said, after 30 years of sexual liberation and brief flirtations with open marriage... Australians are right to give infidelity high billing for moral unacceptability. Infidelity is an act with victims or potential victims. Infidelity breaks hearts, destroys trust and even shatters families. I don't know that our thinking as a culture really has changed all that much since that study in 2004. Whether you're a Bible-believing Christian or otherwise, uh, we don't like disloyalty. We don't like the breaking of trust, cheating on others. Unfaithfulness is no positive thing. Uh, as, As we're getting ready for Christmas, just in a little while, we're looking at this book, the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi. Uh, the final of the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, before Jesus enters history. And just as unfaithfulness is a problem in our day, it was a problem for the people in Malachi's day. Last week, if you were here, you might recall that the people and the priests were dishonouring the Lord. They did this in that they gave the Lord their dregs, their rubbish, their leftovers instead of giving him their very best. And the priests, they weren't even teaching God's law. They were not living God's way. Instead, they were leading others astray and abusing their position of leadership. The people and the priests, they were treating the Lord badly. And when people treat God badly, it's not long before we're treating each other badly too. 
our relationship with God will be seen in our relationships with those around us, especially in the closest of relationships like marriage. And this is what we see in in Malachi this afternoon. Uh, That word unfaithfulness, 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 it's repeated five times in this passage. It's the subject. Uh, And there's two points, I reckon, to this talk. The first, uh, verse 10 to 12, the Lord gets stuck into his people for marrying women who worship gods other than the Lord. And the second point, verse 13 to 16, the Lord gets stuck into his people for divorcing their wives. But before the Lord brings this really hard word to his people through his messenger Malachi, in that first part of verse 10, you notice he just reminds them of a fundamental truth. You see this, the beginning of verse 10, do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? With rhetorical question, Malachi reminds the people of who they are. They belong to the Lord, the God of the Bible. And this isn't just because he made them, he made everyone and everything, but he's their their father, they're in a covenant relationship with this God. The Lord, he promised to love and bless his people, to stick by them no matter what. They share one father, one God, they're one big family connected to each other and so they had to care for one another. That's who you are, says the Lord to his people of old. So, you see the second half of verse 10, so why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? We re-enter the the worldview of the Bible. God made a covenant, a contract, with their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We were reminded of this in chapter 1. And the Lord, he keeps his contracts. He keeps his promises. Actually, the fact that they're back in the promised land at this point is evidence that the Lord is keeping his promises. But the Israelites, God's people of old, were violating the covenant by the way that they were treating one another. They were being unfaithful to one another. How? (laughs) Uh, What have they done? Well, before we get to the content in verse 11, Malachi just repeats the accusation. Judah, that's one of the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah has been unfaithful, unfaithful. It must be serious with this repetition, mustn't it? And we read the content of what they've done there again in verse 11. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. Detestable. That that word could also be translated as abomination. It's usually used to condemn acts related to the worship of idols. Malachi is saying this is very, very serious. And where it says that Judah has desecrated the sanctuary that the Lord loves. It's temple language, isn't it? The sanctuary, the 
the temple. Uh, it could be reference to that, and, and I think that it is. But, but some commentators, they say it could also, this could be a way of describing God's people themselves because God's people are like a sanctuary as in they're holy and they're sacred to the Lord. Uh, in Exodus 19, the, the Lord has rescued the people from slavery in Egypt and they're set apart to be his, holy to him. He loves them, but what they're doing is desecrating that sanctuary. They're marrying women who worship a foreign god. Big deal, someone might say. I, um, I said uh, I uh, taught RI this week. It was Clancy's birthday and I got to teach his RI class on his birthday. Uh, he was very excited, as was I. And I say to the kids, we hold up the Bible and we say, well, what do we, what do we talk about in RI? It's, it's the Bible and the Bible's one big book made up of 66 smaller books. One big story of salvation made up of those 66 smaller books. And if we just step back from Malachi, one of the smaller books for a moment, and think about the big Bible storyline, there was this really high point in Israel's history when Solomon built that grand temple in Jerusalem. But there was a great low point, and it was with Solomon as well. Instead of being united as one family, one united kingdom to, to worship the Lord and make him known to the nations, they split into two, a northern and a, and a southern kingdom, and things just became a mess. A big part of the lead-up to that mess was Solomon marrying women who worshipped other gods wasn't the fault of the women, but it led to the people worshipping these other gods too. In fact, that's how they ended up being kicked out of God's place, the promised land, being under his judgment and in exile. But now they're back in God's place. Seems it's happening all over again. And to be clear, this not being able to marry um, someone, it's, it's not a racist thing. Uh, it wasn't that they were not to marry someone who worships another god. Uh, and there's all these examples in the Bible of people from other nations being included among God's people uh, from uh, other nations joining worship of the Lord. So Ruth the Moabitess is a great example. But we can understand their situation, can't we? Uh, they've been in exile out of God's place for, for decades, and so they're familiar with foreigners and, and their cultures, and they're, they're working together, they're living around each other, and the, the relationship progresses. But whatever the circumstances, whether they're doing it to make business deals or, or, or some other thing, God didn't approve. He wanted the practice to end. See verse 12. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. There was to be no exception. Whoever marries an idol worshipper was no longer fit to be a part of God's 
community, even if they were the most religious worshipper among the people. It's full on, isn't it? And the issue is spiritual compatibility. Relationship with God is such that it will affect all of our other relationships as well. And vice versa, all our other relationships will affect our relationship with God. Who we marry is a big one. We're obviously not back in Malachi's day this afternoon. But the Bible does teach Christians should marry Christians. In 1 Corinthians 7, uh, women who'd recently become Christians are are instructed by the Apostle Paul to stay married to their non-Christian husbands unless their husband chooses to leave the marriage. But where a wife who becomes a Christian uh, later in life like this and the non-Christian man dies... We read in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. It just makes sense. See, we might worry about compatibility with a life partner. Is she smart enough? Uh, Is he funny? Does she like camping? Is he sensitive? Does she like to watch test cricket. They're important questions, are they not? But what is primary? Are they a believer? Are they a fellow believer? Can we grow together in the faith? A friend of mine asked a girl out on a date, uh, and as they were eating their meal, they went straight to the dinner, you know, date, not a coffee first. I don't know what you think about that, but there they are. They're having dinner. Um, First date, and she says to him, if we get married, uh, a a little abrupt, yes. Uh, If we get married, how are you going to encourage me to live for Jesus? A a little abrupt, but it's on the right track, isn't it? As some of you think about who you might marry in the future, are they a believer? Uh, That might be setting the bar too low. Uh, When I was a teenager, uh, I asked a girl out. And and I knew that I I was to go out with a a Christian because, you know, that was taught in my family. So I asked her, are you a Christian? Yes, she said. Tick. Uh, No. How serious are they about the faith? Someone advised me, you find the godliest woman around and you convince her to marry you. Uh, Can we grow together in Christ? And if you're married already, it's worth reflecting on, isn't it? How are we going at growing together in Christ? Just before we um, move on to the next section... This stuff is really hard because uh, some of you are in the situation where you've, you've found yourself married to a non-believer and for varying reasons. Some of you may not be believers and you found yourself married to a Christian. I reckon that's got to be hard too. And singleness comes with its challenges. The pain of broken relationships too. 
Isn't it wonderful that we can be a part of a church family and care for one another in all of these different contexts? In whatever situation you happen to be in right now, we're to be urging one another to honour the Lord, whether married or single, whatever life stage or position we happen to be in. I really love that we, at least at this stage as a church, haven't divided everything up so that our younger people are over here and our older people are over there, but that we get to ask the older, wiser person what they think. Anyway, uh, that second point, verse 13 to 16. The people, they're, they're bringing their sacrifices to the temple But it just seems to be a useless exercise. You you notice this, verse 13, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail. Why? Because he no longer looks with favour on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. Verse 14, and the people ask, why? They're in tears. What's going on, Lord? It's as though they can't understand what's happening. And Malachi says, it's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant contracts. It's as though they just do not get it. And we might like to separate our acts of devotion to the Lord from the rest of life. But that's not how it works. How I treat my wife, how I treat my children, how I treat my family, it says as much about my relationship with God as my church attendance, prayer life or Bible knowledge. You notice in verse 14, we see that not only does God act as witness on the wedding day, you notice we have a wedding ceremony, and we say, in the presence of God. Not only is God witness on the wedding day, but also the witness for the prosecution against this unfaithful bloke. The Lord cares a lot about marriage. He's a covenant-keeping God, a loving and faithful God. And just as love and faithfulness characterise the way the Lord relates to his people, so it is to shape the way his people relate to one another. You notice we began with the oneness of God. It comes up again in verse 15. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. Such is the intimacy of marriage that it results in oneness. Uh, The two shall become one. We read in Genesis Chapter 2, quoting Jesus on a wedding day, we said, what, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And one of the reasons for this oneness that's suggested, though it's not spelt out in this passage, is that God himself is one. That is, he's one God and three persons. 
One God and a community of persons at the same time, like the relationship between a a husband and a wife, the two become one. The obvious reason for the oneness between marrieds, though, what does it say? That they will produce godly children. The Lord is wanting to create a people for himself. It's why he called the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt in the first place, that they might worship him. Divorcing the wife of your youth is not going to help with that, just as marrying someone who worships a different God will not help with that. And so I wonder if you think of family life in these terms for the purpose of producing godly offspring. Now, I don't know that I tend to be that reflective on family life. It's not just through procreation, though, is it? But it's why God sends his people to go and make disciples. Anyway, finally, verse 16. Just read that with me. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. So uh, the Lord cares profoundly about our marriages. The way we treat our partner says a lot about how we're travelling with Jesus. God values love and faithfulness. But being a Christian is no guarantee of a healthy and secure marriage. If we're to have healthy and secure marriages that honour the Lord, we need his help, don't we? And we need each other's help. Now, there's all kinds of practical application from a passage like this. I was saying to Jen this afternoon, I'm sorry, I don't think I've really been helping you as much as I should have in in nurturing your relationship with God. There's so many practical applications from a passage like this. But it's only as we know God's love and his faithfulness, secure in his care, that we can act with love and faithfulness to each other, whatever our life circumstance. And we really need his help, don't we? So how about we pray for it? Our Heavenly Father, as we look back on this big storyline of the Bible and and we see the mess uh, of your people of old, Uh, as they were unfaithful to you, so they were unfaithful to each other. And Lord, we see some of this in ourselves and we're really sorry. Lord, we pray that we would be so focused on knowing and growing in you, being a community that makes you known to the watching world, Uh, that we would choose marriage partners carefully for your glory. And once married, we would cultivate these relationships for your glory.
Lord, as we reflect on our unfaithfulness in lots of ways, we want to say that we're sorry. And we are, Lord. We thank you that you forgive us through Jesus. And we thank you that he was the great faithful one, the new Israel who came and lived in obedience to you and that by trusting in him, we too, well, we're forgiven, but then we might walk in obedience in the power of your spirit. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength and courage to live your way as you enable us. And we pray that you would help us wisely care for one another in whatever circumstance we happen to be in right now. Lord, help us to bear with one another in love. Uh, Help us to urge one another on in Jesus. And help us, Lord, as a community, know your loving faithfulness and rest secure there. Uh, Lord, as we think about applying this practically to our own lives and relationships, We pray that you would guide and lead us for your renown. And we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.